You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Logan Motoshami, lead analyst at HousingWire. Welcome back, man. Great to be here. It, it is Logan time right now. You are on <laughs> fire on social media. Uh, what's on your mind right now? Give us a 50,000-foot overview of all the things you watch, the housing market, the mortgage market, uh, real estate in general. It's just in general, the V-shaped recovery in housing. The United States housing market is the most outperforming economic sector in the world. And it's just based on two real principles. It's demographics and mortgage rates. If people had just stuck to that um, and just believed in that, that's the primary things that drive housing. 2020 makes a lot of sense. And now we're seeing other economic data lines start to show V-shaped recovery. So we're starting to get back to you know uh, um, pre-COVID trends with some of the data lines, but of course there's parts of the economy that just can't get back there. So, but the housing market outperforming really shows that people that believe in economic models, it works, right? You just have to you just have to believe in it, and then even being tested uh, with the greatest health and economic shock of our lifetimes, demographics and mortgage rates prevailed. You know, this is so fascinating because it's such in contrast to what you typically hear around this topic right now. All we hear is COVID, COVID, COVID. And I'm guilty of this myself to a certain extent when we talk about this. So you're talking about core demography and rates. How do you factor in what's happened? Obviously, COVID interrupted that pattern at the very least for a period of time. How do you think about what's happened with COVID and how does it tie in to your core thesis? You, you know, the best way for me to explain it to people, because this really confused everyone, you know, they say, how can Americans buy homes if 20 to 30 million Americans are out of work? And I sit there and I think about this and I think, wow, they just neglected the 133 million people that were always working. So if you're looking as unemployment or jobs being the primary factor for housing, the original thought was a failed concept right away because uh, 20 to 30 million jobs that were lost, a lot of these were tied to wages that would be basically people that are renters, not home buyers. And I think that initial shock, and I think when we look back at this period in time, we were working from the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history. January and February data was good. The rate of growth was picking up in jobs and some of the other data lines. And then February, you know, when I think back to this time, I think February of 2020, housing broke up, but broke out. It's the first time since the early part of this century that housing data was outperforming uh, other sectors. And this has been a long working uh, thesis of mine is that if housing is going to outperform, it's going to be in years 2020 to 2024, because that's when we have the biggest housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. And if you believe in mortgage rates going lower, then you got it right there. If you believe in mortgage rates, even going above 5%, you might lose that aspect. Or if you don't believe in demographics as economics, then you lose that aspect as well. But February, housing broke out. And then the shock of the virus. It wasn't just lockdown protocols, just the sheer shock of the virus. All of us hoarding toilet paper, not knowing what's going on. And then after a few weeks, you know, purchase applications stopped going down, started recovering. And we just continued 
the trend that we had in February. And then that trend was looking at total sales being around 6.4 million. Now, we might not get there uh, this year, but it just continues what the story was, demographics and mortgage rates. And if you only need 4 million mortgage buyers, and I, and I, and I talk about this a lot, if you go back in the 21st century, it's very rare to get existing home sales pre- under 4 million. It's only happened a few times. Uh, 2008, the worst uh, uh, months of the uh, housing bubble crash, which is the start of my weaker demographic patch, the home buyer tax credit, you know, that pulled forward uh, d- demand, and then the next kind of a few months, uh, sales dropped about under four million, and then one month of COVID, and then that's it. That's those are the only times uh, this century where existing home sales dropped under uh, four million. So. 133 million people uh, versus 4 million mortgage buyers needed. So if you look at it in that context, it doesn't look crazy. It's not like the car car sales market where you need 16, 17 million car sales each year to keep sales at bay. You just need 4 million. We have about 15 to 20% cash buyers as a percentage of sales. So it's not that shocking because we came from the weakest housing recovery cycle into the best demographic patch. So you handed it off to really great replacement buyers as long as mortgage rates stay low, you can walk the earth freely, you know, you're by home, right? So I think that's that's the story that should be learned about housing economics in 2020, even with the worst crisis we've ever dealt with in history. Yeah, that's a really great overview. We'll take a look at the rates side in a second. Give us the core of the demographic thesis. Well, ages 26 to 32 are the biggest in the history of America, right? And the first time median home buyer is 33. So you're just kind of running into that demographic patch. And then the first-time homeowner uh, uh, that that had a very good loan to start off with, nested equity. So if they wanted to move up and down, they could. You know, you still have the baby boomers. Some might downsize. You add all those three together plus cash buyers, you got, you know, four to five million uh, home buyers a year easily. So that's the story, you know. If you if we had like 50 million people working or something like that, then you could maybe make a case that existing home sales could go to two to two and a half million. But we never had that in the first place. So the shock of the virus was the was the initial uh, downtrend, and then after that, we just recovered back. So there's enough people working in America to to keep sales stable and existing home sales, even though it's down five uh, percent year to date we still can end the year slightly positive. So we have these wild swings on the data and we might just be flat for the year. And just look at it in that context, you don't see an overheating housing market at all. You just see a very stable one. And I think that's hard to kind of grasp when we see these big down uh, months and then we see these huge um, uh, spikes on, on a monthly data. At some point, it's gonna smooth out. At some point, the virus is gone. And then we go back to a normal trend and then we, we take it from there. It's so interesting, especially for people who've been watching GDP data closely, to believe that we're going to be flat or potentially weakly positive by the end of the year. It's such an interesting thesis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, new home sales are already positive year to date. Uh, existing home sales, purchase application data itself really, really tells you the story. This data line looks 30 to 90 days out. The last four weeks has been the best four week average growth of the year. You know, we just had 33% year over year growth today. The last week was 27%. The two weeks before that, we're running at 22%. So it, it looks good. We, we still have, you know, uh, sales that could keep at bay going out uh, toward the end of the year. Even though the heat months of this is over, seasonality has kicked in. Total volumes typically fall after May. It's, it's lasted a little bit longer due to COVID. It looks fine. You know, as long as you think of it as fine, not record-breaking demand or no homes to buy. Remember, a lot of these 
kind of some, some somewhat bearish thinking is that there's no homes to buy in housing. And guess what? We had the biggest one month sales print ever recorded in history. There are homes to buy there. When demand picks up, sales will grow. That's it's just basically as simple as that. And what do you make about the shifting patterns of supply and demand? I think we've all, you know, I had a friend who had a house in the suburbs that he had on the market for, you know, months and months, got no bites on it. As soon as COVID hit, he was able to unload it very rapidly. There's a shift that seems to be happening from cities to suburbs and exurbs. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not a big buyer of that story. I'm, I'm going to tell you why. This has been happening for years. You know, when people, you know, they rent, they date, they get married, they have kids. They don't live in apartments. They don't live in cities. They live in bigger homes. This is what we do in America. We've been doing this for decades. Okay, so when that first-time home buyer or first-time homeowner actually is ready to get a bigger house, they move away from the cities. Now people are trying to make this as, and I understand it's a very sexy story. Everyone in the only reason housing is working is because everybody's leaving the cities and they're all going to the suburbs. It doesn't work that way because February, February before COVID, the data was the best, right? So, so it's it's a failed premise. But here's a good example: in San Francisco, you see condo supply is higher than at single family. If you're a San Francisco tech worker and you want a bigger house, you wouldn't be living in San Francisco anymore. You you put your condo on the market. And you go move because you could work from home. That makes sense. But try and keep it in a perspective that it's not the entire housing market. Because uh, some of the bearish housing people says this is all about cities losing people to suburbs. And once that's over, it's finished. No, it doesn't work that way. Well, it's a great story, right? It's yeah. A story. And what's interesting about it is, you know, as you point out, when you hear the story long enough, when you hear the narrative long enough, you find the anecdotes to support it, right? Like I can yeah. Other cases uh, where I could pick that story out where it seemed mm-hmm. to happen, but it is really interesting. You know, one of the things that we had heard uh, in the in the you know say let's call it five years uh, or so prior uh, is that millennials uh, and presumably increasingly Generation Z don't want to live the suburban house style uh, house lifestyle. They want to be in cities. They want to be walking distance. They don't want to be reliant on cars. Is that something that's uh, in in favor of your thesis of cities are not dead? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, when you're young and you rent, it doesn't matter. You live in the city, right? When you eventually get a job and you you work a few years and then you find a mate and you have kids, things change, right? And so I think it's just, cities are really expensive. You know, I mean, here in Irvine, where I live, I mean, the, the, the median single family home here is like 1.7 million. So if you just go down 20 miles east, you can buy a, you know, a single family store house for, you know, a, one third of the price. So I think when time goes by, people just buy what they need. So when you're young and you live in the city, you don't need a big single family house. But when you're married and you have kids, you need bigger, you need a bigger home. I think that's that's the story. That's been happening for years. And now it's just this city versus suburbs and everything. And it just, people forget, this has been happening since 2014, actually, when purchase application data is growing, people have kids and stuff. It's just the process of housing. So. Uh, it's the same story. It just gets lost because of COVID and and all this uh, noise around the data. 
And we might end the year literally flat uh, uh, for existing home sales, but there was just too much drama. So you got to kind of take it as demographics. First time owners are looking good. Maybe some baby boomers downsized, but the biggest housing demographic patch is here. So you have about this five year period and year number one, housing beat COVID, right? Lower mortgage rates beat COVID. You know, the 20 or 30 million people unemployed was not big enough to crush housing. So just focus on that. And then you don't get caught into these stories that young, you know, for example, the student loan debt crisis. I've been against the student loan debt crisis for many years. I've said it, it's crazy to think that the educated skill class that make two to five million dollars in their lifetime, this is now the debilitated group that they can't buy. It just doesn't make sense. So the narrative gets lost in these kind of almost culture wars or ideological wars. Right. The basic principle is that people get jobs, they work, they have kids, the high, middle to higher income people buy homes. And that's a very boring story to tell, <laughs> but it is the truth of it all. Uh, so that's why I've always kind of shied away from the student loan debt crisis. Because if you're one of these student loan debt crisis in the middle of the pandemic, it's, it's a questionable theory. So that's so interesting. And that's why we have you on, Logan, because you watch these long-term trends and you think about it in the broader context. So basically what you're saying is you don't really see anything that's durable or anything that's more than a blip here in the short term in terms of this city versus suburbs versus exurbs story. I mean, for certain sectors, of course, you know, I think think so many people are obsessed about the city of San Francisco and housing that, you know, people focus on that. But I think the the condo story in San Francisco is, is, is a legitimate one where people are just putting their condos up for sale, that supply is higher, and they want to move because they can work. See, that's a legitimate case right there. If you can work from home and you you get paid well, why would you live in the city unless you really love it, right? Unless you really love the city, you need a bigger house for your kids, you know? Uh, uh, so it's just, that that makes sense. But to make that a kind of a everyone case, and that once this is over, sales are going to go back down. No, I just think there's there's certain marketplace that have had this happen for years. And with the tech workers or people that can actually work from home, that makes sense. I just question, you know, is this a really big, I mean, some of these tech companies don't employ a lot of people, you know, uh, uh, so it's just keep the velocity in, in, in perspective. Yeah, it sounds like it's a it's a New York and San Francisco story. And because lots of journalists live in New York and San Francisco and because it's they're hot topics and they're overly covered, uh, it maybe distorts our perspective or distorts our lens. It does. And there's also a red versus blue kind of narrative that always goes, you know, New York and San Francisco are considered liberal cities. And but they're also, you know, these very high power economic cities. They're also very high inequality cities as well. So it's a really great narrative for conservatives. Hey, everybody, you know, come to Arkansas, come to Alabama, come to the Midwest, you know, forget you can buy a big house. I mean, there's a part of this that's always been happening, but I think sometimes these stories or, you know, right now in every crisis event, we always think, well, after 9-11, nobody was going to fly ever again. That didn't work out here. You know, who's ever going to go to a sporting event ever again? Okay. These things might make sense now, but let's judge them after we have a vaccine and people can walk the earth and then give it some time. And then let's see, jumping to these conclusions early really makes it problematic if they don't happen because you're, you're kind of stuck on this. This is going to be it. And this time it'll be like this forever. And just be careful of the forever uh, mindset during a crisis. 
Yeah, and we always overshoot. We overshoot to the upside, then we compensate by overshooting to the downside. And yeah. look, I think it is real what we're talking about in, in New York and San Francisco. Look, we, we, we tried, you know, you're based in Irvine. We tried to get you into our New York studio for years. We couldn't arrange it logistically. Now in the post-COVID era, we do everything remotely via Skype, via Zoom. Easy to bring you in at uh, 24 hours notice. We just loop you in. There is something yeah, yeah. to be said for the fact that, but but that's a limited case, yes. isn't everyone? And I think that maybe another yeah. factor that we see here is that the chatter class, people who do journalism, we think about our own lives and we don't realize that this isn't something that is a broad way of the world working. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the housing bubble and crash, it was really just a few areas. Everywhere else was kind of stable, but you have a few pocket areas where, you know, these cities have a lot of people, okay? That's the thing is that, you know, there's like more than 50% of the country lives in just seven areas of the US. So, so it, it should get a lot of attention. I just think that sometimes we also put renters in home buyers. Like some people say, well, millions of Americans just lost their lives and foreclosures are gonna, these were renters, a lot of them. They didn't own homes. So how are you gonna tell me, you know, they're gonna lose their house? They never owned a home in the first place. So I think scale and velocity and understanding all the scope of the data. But again, we live in this world of, you know, these headlines are really exciting and it's really juicy, you know, and I've always said that economics done right is terribly boring. I get it. I try to liven it up as much as possible, but uh, it's just basically not that exciting unless you have an event. So really a lot of my work might be popular this year because I've said, hey, listen, housing isn't going to crash. You know, home prices aren't going to crash. There's all these things. The, the demographic patch, only because sales dropped so much in the first, you know, one, one or two months that it seems really exciting. And now we existing home sales are pre-cycle highs, new home sales pre-cycle. You know, but if you go back in context, not that much bigger than what we were last year. So a lot of noise, a lot of heat, a lot of action, unbelievable amounts of headlines. Not that much change, actually, when, when it's all said and done. But again, the, the main story is always demographics kicked in. You know, it kicked in in February. February, you saw the breakout in the data. And after the COVID, you know, first uh, few months, we just, got, we just got back to trend. And the data will flatten out at some point. Uh, and then when it does, we can go back to kind of the slow and steady housing cycle. Yeah. Well, it's hard to drive clicks with a headline. Today will be a lot like yesterday and probably a lot like tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, I, I understand it. And this is the greatest shock of our life. I mean, listen, we saw sticky economic data just do waterfall dives. And then also some of them have parabolic spikes. Uh, it, it's, it's, data was not designed to do this unless you had a virus or an asteroid. Okay, so we got the, thankfully, we got the first one, not the second one. But um I mean, it's just, it's very, very new to everyone. So I think creating economic models around viruses and setting pr uh, parameters to work with, I think that was, that was the key to, you know, my AB economic model that I created back on April 7th, set parameters on certain data lines to look at. Because I think what happened, it, what, what I thought was going to happen, happened this year. People were going to miss the early economic recovery data lines because they're stuck in their ideological battles. And they don't want to admit things are getting better. And some of these, some of these variables that I've talked about since April 7th were getting better, but nobody wanted to believe it. And now people have to explain these shape recoveries in PMI data, retail sales, housing data. How is this possible? And I think this year we have to realize that economic models do matter and they can explain the story. Because I'm I'm big on connecting the dots. We gotta, we, the why factor is more important than the final result. So you connect the dots, you show people, how do you get there? 
And when it happens, it's like, hey, listen, we said this months ago, when this gets better and this gets better, these data lines will get better. And they have, and they're just almost just going back up to par. And that's where we're at right now with some of the data lines. Some of the sectors cannot, you know, of course, airline, travel, tourism, all these things, they will not be able to work at a full capacity. The general economy cannot work at a full capacity as long as COVID is here. But it wasn't going to be as bad as people thought, unless the we're in lockdown protocols for four to 11 months. And that's another thing I talked about in April. If you were a true housing bear, you need aggressive lockdowns for a very long time because the systemic damage done over a period of time would be would be great. But we really didn't even have a national lockdown ever. You know, so there were parts of the country that were open always. And it's just it's just confusing to put that all into a daily data because we're all kind of in the dark in the first uh, four or five weeks of this crisis. Yeah. What are some of those data points that you're looking at? We showed earlier the purchase application chart. What are some of the other data points that you're looking well, at? Well, the, the five AB economic model was created on April 7th. The number one thing is you got to flatten the curve, you know, and we did, you know, by May 18th, we flattened the curve. Then we got another uh, surge. I don't call it a second wave. Uh, uh, that's getting better. Um, the St. Louis financial stress index, it's the most unloved data line in America. But if you look at it, once, once, the, once that index starts to get better, Right, just like it did in the Great Recession, uh, just like it did now, the economy is ready to go because credit is so important to the U.S. economy. If credit is stressed, nothing happens. If you actually correlate this to, the, to the, even the stock market, there's a there's a good correlation there. And now that index recovered very early on to below zero, which is the normal stress line. That's good. And then second of all, you need for housing itself. Again, once purchase application data gets positive, as long as you show year over year growth, right? Flat to year over year growth means that base 4 million mortgage demand is there. When you have negative 15 to 35% data, you have something wrong, okay? That was for the first few weeks, that was fine. So as soon as that data started to reverse course, there was your cue that housing was starting to come back. And then, then you get to see the kind of uh, uh, jobless claims, continuing claims are falling. Uh, the other uh, V-shaped uh, data lines, PMI data is getting better. Retail sales got better. Uh, you have to uh, believe that we can actually facilitate fiscal and monetary operations to help the housing market and the general economy. That's there. If you don't believe that we have the capacity to do that, then yeah, you could stay bearish. But the economy was recovering months ago. And I, I just think we're stuck in this phase that we like to believe the worst is possible so it, we can push our ideological beliefs we did that in the Great Recession. People missed that recovery, which was the longest ever. And 2020, the AB model was introduced just for this year, right? I, I truly believe this year would have got there. Now, the last thing I want to see is that 10-year yield to go up, right? We want that 10-year yield to rise above 1%. We want it to really be between 1.33 and 1.6. Then we start to get in this continuous, slow and steady GDP growth. We're not there yet because you fall 100 feet down a cliff and then you're up 70, doesn't mean you're back. But when we get two to three quarters of like slow one and a half or two and a half percent growth, then the 10 year yield should rise by then. If it doesn't rise by then, there's something else going on here. But uh, I think that's the last thing I'm waiting for in my model to get that 10 year yield to get above 1%, which will show that you know the US economy can create demand inflation and, and, and we should be okay. But again, it's such a unique period because it's our first virus, right? It's our first shutdown protocols that we've all had to deal with. Uh, but we weren't going into a recession in 2020. I think the biggest mistake I see is that in 2019, there were a lot of people who said inverted yield curve, uh, um, unemployment rates are low, uh, ISM is under 50, the 10-year yields at 1%. This has happened many times before in that record-breaking expansion. 
the data was getting better. So you don't have this overinvestment in any area. You don't have consumer credit problems. Things were getting better. So once we get this virus out, there's nothing that should prevent us from just kind of working our way back up the trend. And then once you know we could travel again, I think a lot of the other economic data will follow through. All right, Logan, let me make the bear case here. So uh, the bears will say something like the following. A U.S. economy entered recession in February 2020, according to MBER. Uh, they would say that the reason that we have not seen this massive cliff face that we've seen in recovery is because of incredibly accommodative monetary policy and also fiscal policy. And now due to political dysfunction, the argument goes, the fiscal policy is rolling off the table uh, and we are just a hair's breadth away of fall- falling back over the cliff. That's what they would say. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, so if unemployment benefits go to zero, which is not going to be the case in a political election year, okay, then you could say that the 20 million that are unemployed, I mean, the CARES Act really makes it 30, that weighting is more than the 139 million that are still working. Okay, so that's why I always say, everyone, everyone talks about the unemployed people, but they never talk about the 140 million that are still working. So, so I will take this side mm-hmm. versus this side any day. Now, the Fed's their not gonna raise- be, Their response would be in economics, everything happens at the margin. The idea that there are 30 million people who have, who have moved uh, to the unemployment rolls means that there's a marginal change and that that's a swing factor. That's probably yeah. what the response would be. Yeah, so so if, 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 if they cut unemployment benefits to zero, if there's no more CARES Act, if the Fed starts raising rates, if all that happens, okay. Let's wait to see that happens, okay? Because it's a, it's a speculative theory that in an election year, they're just going to pull the plug out. You know, uh, um, we, we, you know, you see that in the confidence data that the confidence index is falling back down again because you know the fiscal side is people aren't sure about it. Which I don't understand what the Republicans are doing here. This election year, just juice the economy up. It's actually kind of weird. The Democrats want to juice the economy up for yeah. the, and then it's just like you know, so bizarre. Yeah, world we, it's politics is the word itself. It's politics. It's many blood sucking parasites. It doesn't make sense. But in election year, everything's on the table. So um, it is true. If we see an aggressive stance by the Fed by raising rates or there's no more benefits, then yeah. But we have spare capacity. I think that's the thing. If if you're in the mindset that we're broke, we can't borrow, rates will go up, inflation will go up. If you're in that mindset, then yeah, you would be bearish because a 10-year yield will go about 5%, 6%. You know, uh, there's no money to give out to people, but we have that spare fiscal and, and uh, monetary capacity. So I'm going to go on that side that things, the government will step in as they should in these. And then at some point in the future, when things get normal, they'll start to ease that out. But uh, it's just, it was such a deep dive. You know, there's some, like I tell people, we can't have a W, right? We can't have a W because we we can't work from, the longest expansion ever to what the hell is going on with this virus. That sh- I mean, we saw employment to population data just fall like a waterfall. It's not designed to do that way. To get that same replication, it'd be very difficult. So we might have a slowdown and coming back uh, uh, down a little bit, but to get that kind of sharp W back, it's, it's impossible. And I, and, and I use the example here in Irvine, nobody's hoarding toilet paper anymore. 
right? Even with, we just had restrictions on maybe a few weeks ago. Nobody's panicking anymore. We're starting to learn, which is crazy for some people to think, how to live and consume goods and services in a virus economy where a virus is infecting and killing people every day. That is a hard concept to believe in because we think, wow, you know, why would anybody risk their life? But we're starting to we're starting to do that. And I think that prevents the W, the worst case of the bears, that we just go straight right back down. And that's why the number one rule I said, don't talk about the shapes of the general economy. You can't have kind of a V-shaped recovery with, with COVID still out there. But there are certain sectors that once things start to flow again and credit, that's why credit is so important. That's why that St. Louis financial stress index is so important. When credit starts to flow again, boy, you know, we just we that 133 now, 140 million people will start to buy and consume goods. And then CARES Act came in, retail sales controlled retail, uh, retail sales year over year was up the best in the 20 uh, actually since uh, since the last uh, crisis. So there are people out there, right? And that's why demographics matter so much. People need to consume goods and services. And with the CARES Act and everything in there, you can just move it along until we get a vaccine, until we get this virus out of our economy and out of the uh, our, our, our system. And then we go back to just trend data uh, and then talking about when will the Fed raise rates or stuff like that, what we were doing before. Well, you know, it's so interesting. This is... Uh... We've seen the the bears, the deficit hawks have been calling for massive rises in the 10-year rate uh, since, uh, you know, what, 2007, 2008, since the initial announcement of QE, and it's just not come. It's we're 70 basis points. I, I the, the bond market bubble people to me are like the drunk guy at a bar that's looking at his iPhone and just typing in bubble, 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 bubble. This is a four-decade story here. Why? Because... You know, the, the funny part is that if the bond market did rise, it's actually bullish that the U.S. is growing so much. You know, we don't have that kind of growth anymore. So, uh, again, the 10-year yield is, what, 70 basis points today. Uh, we have 25, 26 trillion in debt. We're going to 70, 80 trillion dollars in debt. If anybody tells you anything otherwise, they're lying to you. The bond market doesn't care because the economy can't grow that fast. When the economy growth picks up and demand inflation picks up, yeah, you can see the 10-year yield rise. But this notion that the 10-year yield was just going to like spike up, maybe in Europe, right? If, if, if European countries want to leave the euro, good luck. See that bond market go against them. That's right. But the United States of America is a $140 trillion GDP financial asset country. It's the reserve currency of the world. We're okay. But we always get these dollars going to collapse. Well, the dollar's not even back to 2018 lows. I don't care about the dollar has to collapse. No, it doesn't. You know, so it just that conversation you get people lost. And true, if 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 the ten-year yield did spike up to six to seven percent and inflation is this low, that's a terrible thing. But there's there's never been any evidence of that for for many decades uh, that 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 could even occur here. Yeah, it's a, as you point out, it's a forty-year story. You can start with nineteen eighty to the present; it's a straight line down, right? On those. Yeah. Years. So, uh, and and, and for, again, one of the hardest things I had to do the last few years is try to convince people that there would be a two-handle on mortgage rate. You know, they go, "No, that's impossible." And then I go, "Well, look at the bond market. Ten-year yields just—they're like, oh, I don't know. Rates have to go. They have to go higher because of people's ideological beliefs. But any technician could tell you there's nothing changing in that ten-year yield, right?" You know, in fact, before the before the actual recession happened, I talked about my recessionary yields are negative 21 basis points to 62 basis points. If the 10-year yield is above 62 basis points, to me personally, which is, should be different to everyone else, the bond market is actually telling us things are going to get better in the future. 
If we start to get below 62, then I'd be uh, concerned. But you, if that 10-year yield gets above 62, it's things, things are stable out. And that was a correct way to look at the bond market because third quarter GDP is going to be okay compared to what it is. And these are just very low bars, and we're just kind of working our way through. So I think if you're a bear, you need the Fed to ease monetary operations. You need the, uh, the government to stop giving stimulus. You need a lot of things that most likely aren't going to happen. So it's more of a speculative theory. And but but the worst thing is if we literally had a second wave, like a horrific second wave across the country where, you know, uh, deaths started to increase, new, uh, new cases started to increase and governments had to do reimpose a, a, a lockdown. Without that, I think the worst is over. And let's talk about those uh, about those rates. 30 year fixed under the three handle now two 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 and change, 2.67, 2, 2.8, those sort of numbers floating around. Obviously, that has to have a stimulative effect on housing market. It is. But one thing about it is that before the before the recession happened, uh, housing demand was good uh, before the 10 year yield really cracked down under one percent. So it, it'll help the marginal home buyer. Right. And, and, and when rates go up, you know, for example, uh, for a lot of years, I said when the 10 year yield gets above 2.62 percent, housing demand will get hit. A lot of people said, no, that's impossible. Rates are historically low. It kind of doesn't work that way, you know, uh, because the marginal buyer always gets impacted. So uh, we saw that in 2018, you know, the new home sale market, monthly supply spike up, builders confidence down. 2019 construction was flat because we had excess amount of homes. That was at 4.75 to 5%. In fact, I wrote an article for Housing Wire yesterday saying that 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 2.62% might not even be the number anymore. 1.94%. You know, so be careful of housing data when the 10-year yield gets above 1.94%. People go, wow, that's so low in yield. Yes, but the marginal home buyer. Every year that goes on, home prices increase. You know, so the marginal home buyer could get impacted when rates go down. It doesn't mean home prices are going to crash or sales are going to crash, but you see that equilibrium uh, with housing data that there's a certain level where mortgage rates come and that marginal buyer is gone. And we saw that in 2013, 2014. We saw that in 2018. We saw that in 2019. Now I would say if the 10-year yield can close above 1.94% and start going up higher, be, be mindful of housing data then because we've been under, you know, 1% for so long. Rates have been so low for so long that... That marginal home buyer could get hit uh, if, if that occurs. And what does that translate to? That about a two handle on the ten. What does that translate to on the? You're, you're looking. You're looking over four four percent mortgage rates. You know, four point seven five to five percent shut down housing construction in terms of rate of growth. So just kind of be mindful when we get over four percent. That see, let, let let the housing market prove to you first that it can handle it. That this big demographic patch is okay. These dual household incomes can actually take on that higher rate. But we're talking about a rate of growth change, right? And that's that's the thing, you know. And in 20, 2018, you know, home sales were falling. People immediately thought, well, here comes the crash. No, it wasn't. It was just sales went down a little bit, inventory rose a little bit. Real home prices were negative last year, which I cheered, which I'm a big believer that we want real negative home prices year over year. But and nothing really happened. It's just a marginal home buyer. And that's really in cities, right? In certain areas where home prices are. So that marginal buyer gets hit. So just be mindful of that going out. Who knows when we'll get that 10-year yield above 2% again. But when it does, uh, if housing cools down a little bit, you know, just just don't go straight into the crash. Just, just kind of think. Find that equilibrium between supply and demand and, and, and see where we go. Because remember, one of the things that is unique with housing this year is housing tenures at 10 years. Right from 1985 to 2007, it's five years. People are staying in their homes longer and longer. 
right? This means these are a lot of nested equity people. These aren't, you know, margin stock traders that, you know, are just going to have to unload their homes at, at, at 1201. You know, they're, they're just going to stay there, you know, and that's the thing we saw in this crisis. Sales went down, but so did inventory. Nobody needed to sell their homes. Now, forbearance is going to be a very unique story. And that's going to be in 2021. I think, I think already I could see the mega housing bears are going to be wrong because they don't read the data about forbearance, right? And, and you, you look at it, they go, well, 20 million people lost their jobs. Well, 9.3 million are back. So you got 13 million out of the 13 million. How many of them are actually homeowners? So these, since these are homeowners that can own the debt, if they get their jobs back or any kind of income, most likely they're going to stay in their house. These aren't speculative investors. And I think that's so much of the, so much of the housing discussion is, is looked at as an investor for money. That's why the price-only crowd. I've always tell people, be careful of the price-only crowd because they don't care about demographics or mortgages, whatever. They just want to make money on their investment. That's not the majority of the housing market. The majority of the housing market are people who look at housing as the cost of shelter to their own capacity to own a debt. And they want to stay in their homes, right? They don't want to just, hey, I, I, I'm down 1% on my home. I'm dumping it. You know, no, that's just not how it works. Investors have a different mindset. Remember, cash buyers are still 15 to 20%. They're probably looking, hey, I'm ready to go. If those forbearance come out, I'm going to come in and buy it. So just remember that for 2021. Don't kind of go to the worst case scenario. Take all the variables, look at it, and then take it from there. And then you could have a better perspective because, the big housing bears in March and April were so sure this was it, right? Without looking at all the things in housing, it didn't happen. And now you see these V-shaped data lines, purchase applications, home sales, new home sales, housing starts, permits, everything just came back sharp. It's the outperforming sector in the world. So no time in the history of America have the housing bears whipped this severely. That's, that's what we should come back with in 2020. Such an important point on the difference between uh, housing markets and and equity markets or uh, or even debt markets. It's just a totally different mentality in the way that those markets are driven by the by the owners. Totally different philosophy uh, in general. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk more on the point that you just raised, uh, which is the issue of forbearance. What's your outlook on forbearance, and what's the impact going to be on the market? Well, it's it's very complicated. See, if there was no forbearance program, my mindset would be okay. Once we get to ninety days. Uh, delinquencies, then we have to think every one of these homes are going to be uh, notice of default and eventually a foreclosure. Okay, so forbearance is coming down. People go, how are, how are people coming off of forbearance? So first of all, not everyone actually needed forbearance, right? They were kind of told, hey, listen, if you don't want to make your mortgage payment, go ahead. Some people actually took it. They could make their mortgage payments, but they didn't. Uh, uh, they didn't think anything of it. So I think over time, and I think this is the main thing about forbearance, if the jobs data starts to get better, right, and we start to just take, you know, out of the 20 million jobs we lost, we get 15 million back, that real foreclosure crisis is, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Because if these people, every single one of them had the capacity to own the debt, right, they qualified with their, with their income whenever they bought the home, 2012, 2015, 2018. The risk profile are FHA home buyers, right? That's that's going to be the risk. If you actually look at the forbearance data, the highest level of forbearance are FHA. Low down payment, maybe the lower FICO scores. Once you have a lower FICO score and you buy a house, that means you already have somewhat of a struggling cash flow. That's the segment. If you're looking for forbearance, that's where the stress would be, even if we get all the jobs back uh, within the next like six, six or seven months. That group will be the problem group next year. But in general, 
if jobs are coming back and these people get their incomes back, they're going to stay in their homes because this is their home. They're, you know, this is where their this is where their kids live. That's where their kids go to school. They don't want to lose the house, you know. So they're not just going to go. Oh well, you know, I was up twenty two percent on the house, and now I'm only up seventeen. I'm going to walk away. No, it doesn't work that way. Stressed income owners, it makes sense, right? You know, if you live in an expensive area. And let's say one, let's say you had a dual household income, and then one of the people lost their jobs, and they just can't get that job back. And they go, you know what? I'm going to, we're going to sell our house and just move, you know, uh, to, to the Midwest or somewhere cheaper because we have this major equity. I think that's that's another thing about the cities versus suburbs. If you think of cities, you need a dual household income to qualify. Then you go, well, you know, my husband or wife can't get her job back, or we can't get the kind of income back. We have a lot of equity in this house. Just put the house on the market and you go, well, it's a lot more. I could almost buy a house, you know, in Tennessee for cash and not have a $500,000 mortgage here. You know, so I think that that is another aspect that forbearance people need to realize. This isn't like the credit bubble where you had 100% financing, option arms and anything. Those loans, even if you had two people working, once they once the rate recasted, you couldn't do anything, right? So the sales levels were working from like 7.26 million for the housing bubble. Then it started to crash down. It took three years to crash it down. We're working from 5.3 million. So if you are a forbearance crash bear, you need home sales to drop at least two and a half to three million in the next 16 months to justify any bubble talk. That is most likely not going to happen. Not most likely is not going to happen with our demographic match. Okay, it's just not right. Very rare to even get under four million, even after that. So, forbearance bear people, just be mindful. Wait, be patient. Wait till December, January. See what the government does. Also, you don't even know next year. Whoever the president is, most likely doesn't want to have that first year of oh, we're going to have another foreclosure uh, foreclosure crisis or people leaving. So, you might see an extension on some of the forbearance plans. So just don't go to the worst case scenario first. Think about, be patient, let it come to you. Once you see NOD filings come into place and where they're going, that's where you want to focus your energy if that's your thing. But uh, it's so much different. It's almost different in every single way than what we saw during the housing bubble years. And again, the political aspect of next year is that there might be another plan, right? There might be another plan to keep people in their homes. So uh, we'll see about that, but I think people need to just wait and see if that forbearance percentage keeps on going lower and lower, because I think there's a huge lag effect between the jobs gain and the forbearance plans going down. Well, you know, contrasting against where we were in 2008, 2009, I'm curious to talk here, you talk about the structure of the lending market itself, how the mortgages have changed since the bad old days of the option arm uh, resets. Yeah, uh, pretty vanilla, fixed Fixed products, you have to be able to own the debt. Uh, and then you were talking about millions and millions of Americans that have refinanced since 2010 and on. So you have a lot of Americans who have fixed low debt costs versus rising wages and nested equity versus a period of time. When I think of the housing bubble years, I think of 2002 to 2005, right? So that was where you, you see it, purchase application data, new home sales, existing home sales, real home prices. That's where it, it took off. Per capita income actually was below home prices in the late stages of 2002. And then you saw home prices go above per capita income. We're almost at the point where it's flat now. So back then, you just saw a credit bubble with non-owning capacity debt. 
not the case now. Every single American who owns a home has the capacity to own a debt, even people with bank statement loans. I mean, we talked about that earlier this year when the mortgage meltdown was happening. It was 4.5 to 6.2% of all loans that got hit. That means 93% really of mortgage loans were able to be function. Right? That's a huge deal because I see a lot of housing bearish people say credit's getting tight. No, credit's getting tight for those products, right? And they're, they're still saying this, okay? What happens in the commercial business lending does not mean the same thing in the residential lending, right? So because Freddie and Fannie are not publicly traded companies, we got lucky. If these were publicly traded companies without government back share, there would be a whole tightening of credit out there that would have that would have been problematic for the housing. So we as a country, as as people in America, were lucky that the GSCs were still in government uh, government conservatorship, and they're able to take losses or do whatever. Uh, you know, recently they they jacked the fee up for refinances. You know, uh, uh, just to kind of save capital. You know, you don't need to do that if you're part of the government. So my idea has, has always been that you should just let the GSC stay in conservatorship. That's better for the American people. Once you make them publicly traded companies, they have to do it for profit, right? You know, the GSCs can take unlimited losses if they need to uh, under government conservatorship. But once they're public, they're fair game. And I think that's the thing. Credit did not tighten up this time around. So when we talk about debt structures, it was, it was for the most part, it was just a few products, FHA, maybe 20% down jumbo products, not uh, bank statement loans. Those things got hit. Everything else pretty good. And I think that's that's a real big difference between now and last. And you actually see it now. I, I tell everybody, go to the monthly supply of new home sales. In this part of the recession, we've basically had pre-cycle lows. If you go back in the other recession, it's at pre I mean, all-time highs. There's a huge difference. And think about that. Just don't make everything a housing bubble. It's really different this time around. And this is one of the reasons why housing came back so well. Yeah. Logan, final thoughts, and what are you going to be looking for to confirm this thesis going forward? So at some point, we're not going to have 27 to 33% year-over-year growth in purchase application. If it is, then that's just this is hotter than even I thought it would. Second week of January to the first week of May next year, purchase applications, as long as it's flat to positive, the housing bears have already lost. Because if you're if you're one of these crash bears, after November you need to see purchase applications show at least 15 to 35 percent declines from these levels to get your bearish crash. Keep an eye on that. Uh, there's going to be so much noise in the next four months between the election and everything. Okay, if you're if you just want to focus on housing, kind of ignore that. Wait until January. See that purchase application. Follow the year over year data. It tracks forward-looking demand pretty well. This is why early on when I was writing those V-shaped recovery data lines, people were like, no, crazy, it's not going to happen. And no, 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 the data got better right away. So the sales data lags that, and that's what people should, should track. Uh, and I still believe Freddie and Fannie will not leave conservatorship, so credit won't get tight as some people thought, as some people think it would. Logan, talking about the housing market with you is like playing tennis with Roger Federer. <laughs> I just try to hit the ball back over the net. Listen, it's an interesting thesis, and it's you know the 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 scope that you bring to this, the broad-based data analysis, the historical context, incredibly interesting. Yeah, and I think that that four million home buying versus one hundred thirty-three million working—that was that was the main thing in twenty twenty. If, if people just looked at it in that way, a lot of it makes sense. If you don't look at it in that light, 
then uh, then it's confusing, right? You you think nobody could buy homes. So just always remember the, the the amount of people that are working versus the amount of people that are unemployed, especially in the kind of the ages uh, 28 to 47. That's your home buying kind of range out there. Uh, even though that level has fallen, the people that lost their jobs in bigger scales were renter financial. That's why I always said rent, rent, rent. People who need help are renters, right? Uh, uh, that's the group. And the CARES Act actually did. For as, for, as, for as much as criticism people give about the CARES Act, you saw that. Disposable income went up. Savings rate blew up higher. Retail sales came back. This is what the government can do in, in these kind of stressful. They come in and fill that gap. And it, and it showed this year in 2020. Yeah, Logan, come back later in the year, next year. We'll fo- keep following this story and we'll see how it plays out. Definitely. Sounds good. Logan Motoshami, lead analyst at Housing Wire. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.